Well, for the first time in several months, I'm going to preach and not talk about food. Uh, this summer, I was preaching on themes of food and scripture and uh, finished that up last week. Actually, I was supposed to preach one more, and I just was kind of done with it. I don't know. And I didn't know what I was going to preach, and then decided to kick back into some reading that I had done uh, by a man named Brennan Manning. And I'm not sure if you are familiar with Brennan Manning. Uh, wrote a book uh, called The Ragamuffin Gospel. Has been a fairly influential speaker and writer, but quietly. He was a uh, Jesuit priest. I think he was Jesuit. Um, and uh, eventually got married and had to leave the priesthood and uh, worked more in Protestant circles after that. Um, I had the honor of getting to hear him speak and getting to meet him about six years ago. And he has really shaped how I think about the Christian faith. And so I decided, just for my own benefit, I would read a lot of his stuff. And I've decided over the next couple of weeks to just preach out of that, out of my own study. And so uh, that's what you're going to get. I'm not going to try to say in this, what's Brennan Manning's thoughts and what are my thoughts. Just assume the good ones probably come from him. And uh, I would commend to you his work. He's got a lot of stuff on YouTube. In fact, you can hear a lot of his talks. Um, and there's a, just recently a movie called The Ragamuffin. It's the story of, uh, of, a, of a musician. Um, what's the name of the musician? Um, Rich Mullins, who wrote the song Awesome God, was also very influenced by Brennan Manning. Uh, Brennan Manning understood the gospel in a different way because he, in his life, had um, really been through a lot of abuse um, he was an alcoholic and would fall back into that, even as a priest. He would occasionally fall back into that throughout his life. And he understood grace and he understood the Christian faith in a really different way. And so I'm going to challenge you to think about that. Text is really short. Comes from Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. You, you'll recognize some of this pretty instantaneously. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Here ends the reading of God's word. Familiar words, it's a little bit different in Matthew and we add some things to the prayer, but we just said it a few moments ago. The interesting question is, why would the disciples ask Jesus to teach them to pray? They were Jewish. They prayed all the time. They stopped every day to pray at certain times. They had certain things they had memorized since they were children. Most of the book of Psalms that you have in your Bible, these disciples probably knew by heart from praying them. They know how to pray a lot more than we know how to pray. And yet when they looked at Jesus and they looked at his prayer life, they noticed something different. Jesus seemed to always be getting away from the crowds, getting away from ministry to spend time with God. And so they asked, teach us to pray. John's, John taught his disciples to pray, but we want to know how you pray. And Jesus says, pray this way. 
Father or our Father. We pray that every Sunday. We pray that every Sunday. And yet, I think we miss how radical that prayer was. How radical that opening line was when Jesus prayed it. No one in that day prayed to God as Father. God was always distant, off somewhere. God was so other than us that we would never pray to God in any kind of intimate way. But Jesus said, hey, when you pray, you say, Father. In fact, several times in the New Testament, Jesus doesn't use the word Father. He uses the word Abba. It's more like Daddy. I mean, when we, when we learn how to speak, when all my kids speak, one of the things, I think this is just a benefit for dads. Um, but a lot of times, what's the first word that they speak? Dada. Dada is very often, in, 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 for many children, the, the first word that they say. But in ancient Israel, it probably wouldn't have been Dada. It really might have been Abba. Abba. It's kind of that pet name, that loving relational name, not Father. Daddy. And Jesus says to the disciples, when you pray, you pray, Daddy. Started off with a personal address. That was radical. I mean, when you read the Old Testament, nobody calls God Father. They don't call God Daddy. They're worried about God. What's he going to do to us? Is he going to judge us? Are we following in his will? Are we staying in step with what he said? But, but Jesus says, no, when you pray, you say, Daddy. And how much of Jesus' life relates to his relationship with the Father? Think about all these. I'll just name a couple. Jesus said that he came to do the will of the Father. When he was a child and he was lost at the temple and his parents had to go find him after several days, he, he just looks at him and said, don't you know I would be about my father's business? At his baptism, a voice from heaven of the father comes down and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus said, if you want to see the father, see me, and then you've seen the father. And when he cries out from the cross, what does he say? Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. I mean, one of the things you could look at, you could look at the entire life of Jesus as one big relationship with the Father. Again and again and again, he comes back to it. How many of Jesus' stories are about the Father? How many of Jesus' parables portray the Father as this loving, consistently and extravagantly giving and forgiving? Matthew 18, a king wipes out a huge debt. Luke 7, the the debt is canceled of a prostitute who's about to get in trouble. In Luke 15, we remember the story of the the shepherd who would leave the 99 to go out for the one lost sheep. Remember the story of the prodigal son, where that prodigal son throws off the father's gifts and then goes and spoils his life. And when he comes back, that father runs and throws an extravagant party for the whole community for his lost son is back. Or what about this one? This is a parable that drives people crazy. Matthew 20, you should read it later. There is this person who owns a vineyard and he he calls people in the morning and he says, okay, I want you to work for a denarii for the day. And they say, okay, so they start working. And then a couple hours later, he goes and finds some more workers and says, hey, hold denarii if you finish the work. And then a little bit later, he goes and gets some more people and he says, okay, go work in the fields. And, and even in the last hour, he goes and gets some more people and says, hey, come help us finish. And at the end of the day, you know what he does? 
He pays every single worker the same amount, whether they worked all day or just for an hour. Now, in Jesus' day, this story was told uh, by the Pharisees and by others. This was a famous teaching. Except when most people told it, the workers who worked that last hour worked so hard that they earned the same amount of money as the people that worked all day. And so the moral of the story was work harder and you will get rewarded. But when Jesus tells the story, it ends like this. The, the workers who worked all day get mad at the vineyard owner. But he replies to them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give you I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So Jesus adds, the last will be first and the first will be last. Jesus' conception of the Father, the way he thinks about the Father as this extravagant, loving, giving, forgiving Above anything that he should possibly do, he loves and he gives. That's how Jesus portrays God, as a loving father. That was radical in those days. Radical to think of God in that way. In fact, I think it's every bit as radical today. Because it's so easy for us to think of God as distant, as off somewhere, as judgmental, as just wanting us to follow the rules and stay in line. It's like Jesus is some gym teacher up in heaven, watching what you do, taking the checklist. He's some sheriff out to get you caught. That's not the God that Jesus portrays for us. It's not the God that he is. It's not the father that he portrays. And it's not the spirit that he sends. God loves you. Above all else, God must be defined as love. God loves you as you are, not as you should be, because none of us are or ever will be as we should be. It's not based on us at all. It's not based on how much we worked. It's not based on when we came into this Christian faith. It is God's love, period. Paul calls this, God, this God's love unknowable in Ephesians chapter 3. He's talking about encouraging the Ephesians. And he says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all goodness. God's love is so big, you could never grasp it. You will never understand it. Just before I had heard Brennan Manning, I had had a personal experience where I, I, I got a different grasp of God's love. My son, Jaden, was born. And uh, I remember it was later that day or the next day, I'm holding Jaden in my arms, and I'm nervous because I haven't been around like baby, ba like that's a baby baby. And I hadn't been around baby babies that much. I even asked the nurse at one time if his head would fall off, which she did not appreciate at all. So I'm holding this little, little guy in my arm and I just had this moment of, man, I love this kid. Like I love this kid. I don't know anything about him except his height and weight and what his footprint looks like now. 
I don't know his personality. I don't know what he's going to do in his life. But man, I just love this kid. And then I had this moment of, that's what a father's love is like. Except my love is imperfect. I know that. But God's love is not. God's, not, God's love as father is not like your abusive or distant father. Not like the father that you were, but you made mistakes. God's love is perfect. And I realized in that moment, and I just sat there for a long time. God loves me like this, but better. God holds me like this. Not based on anything that I have done. Because I'm not going to do everything right. But God loves me because God is love. And why am I lovable? Because God loves me. As St. Augustine put it, in loving me, you have made me lovable. That God makes us lovable. Isn't it interesting when you read through the stories of the Bible, who are Jesus' favorite people to hang out with? The bums, the losers, the outcasts, the lepers, the Samaritans, tax collectors and prostitutes. Let me say this plainly to you. God loves you as you are and not as you should be because you're never going to be how you should be. God loved you before time began. God calls you a son and a daughter and is well pleased with you. God holds you in his arms the way I held my son, but better. If you were a lost sheep, God would leave the 99 and venture out into the wilderness to rescue you. If you were a leper, God would touch you and heal you. If you were a prostitute, God would save your life and forgive you. If you run away from God, he will run to you and throw you a banquet. Jesus died for you. Let me say that really clearly. Jesus did not just die for an abstract you like all of you. He died for you. If you were the only person in this world, God loves you enough that Jesus would go to that cross for you because he would rather die for you than live eternity without you. God will give you the same reward even if you started out on this Christian journey a little later or with a little rougher history. If you feel like an outcast in society, know that you are in good company because most of Jesus' best friends come from that cast. And when God holds you in his arms, he loves you as a perfect child, as you are. But we have several problems with this love. First, I think we don't always feel love because life throws all kinds of garbage at us, right? If God loves me, why this? Why this? Two, we, we say we know that God's love, God loves us. But we still live out of fear and guilt, shame and anger. Three, I think we know that God's lo- God loves us. But still sometimes we buy into the lie that if, if we were just a little bit better, God would love us. Or that we better keep it together or else God's love will go away. Fourth, I think, rather than being totally cast into this love affair with the Father, the way Jesus commends to us, we keep our relationship with God formal, sterile, and distant. We keep God as we would a doctor or a counselor, somebody that we need to keep a little bit of distance from to be safe so we can go to with problems, but not a friend and not a lover. To the first problem, about feeling loved We're not feeling love because life gets us down. I can't sugarcoat it. 
Sometimes life stinks. And I've heard Christians say all the time that God only gives you what you can handle. And I think it's garbage. It's not in the Bible ever. And I know plenty of people that that life has thrown at more than they can handle. God's love isn't that he keeps us from the tough times of life. God's love is that he stays with us in them. That he cries in in our pain. That he feels it and understands it. That Jesus and the Holy Spirit, the Bible tells us, prays on your behalf when you can't even find the words. So that we can feel loved in the middle of our pain. To the second problem, the one where we continue to live out of guilt, fear, and shame. I don't know how to say this any more clearly than this. Guilt, fear, and shame are contrary to the gospel of Jesus. If you are really afraid of God, you don't know him. If you live your life in shame, you don't know him. Um, one of the things that Brennan Manning used to say is he said he would say like repeat after me. He say, "I will not should on myself today," and he would say to other people, "Don't should on me," because so many times that's what we do. We pile shoulds on ourselves. Oh, I should do that, or that person. No, I will not should on myself anymore. Write that on a card somewhere in your house. And you're allowed to laugh at it when you see it. If you're a Christian, you should tell your face. Because your face should be smiling. You should be living differently. Start looking like you're saved. Like you're not really that afraid of of death. That the end of life isn't that big a deal to you. Because you know you're going to your father's house. And you're going to be better off there anyway. To the third problem. That we try to earn God's love or keep it. This is the one that gets me. And I have, I have been anxious for a few weeks now. And I know that I have bought into this once again like I always do. Like I don't want to let God's down, God down. But God's love of you and God's love of me is not an investment on the future that you might have or the things that you might do. God loves you as you are. Because you're never going to be everything that you can be. But out of that love, does that mean you don't change? No. But, but the motivation is different. You, you learn to live out of love. And because God loves you, you want to be different. It's like if somebody critiques me about something, and, they don't, and I know that they don't love me, they just want to critique me, I can brush that off. But if, if, if one of my parents or if my wife says something to me that's valuable, because I know that they love them, I want to change. I don't try to earn God's love, but I do live differently because of it. And if I don't, if I feel like God's trying to control me or if I'm trying to control God's love, guess what? That's that's an abusive relationship. Whether it's God controlling me or me trying to control God's love, it's an abusive relationship and it has no place in the Christian faith. To the fourth problem, that we keep our relationship with God sterile, distant, And we we never fling ourselves fully into the love affair. The sad truth is that our structures, prayers, and theology in the church can actually perpetuate that. The reality is that God is not an idea. God is not a concept. God is not a piece of information to be understood, grasped, or mastered. God is a person expressed in Jesus. And that our lives are meant to be a love affair with this God. We are called for the rest of our lives to say, wow, 
to come into church and hear this same old story and sing these hymns once again and, and once again have our mouths, our jaws drop, our mouths open and gasp and say, wow, I'm loved that much. To come in here every Sunday and look at this big cross and be reminded of how much God loves us. And yes, when we pray and we say, Our Father, to remember that we are not just repeating Jesus' words, that it is not just a statement uh, uh, that we are doing because of muscle memory, but is a statement of who we are, whose we are, and the very nature of our relationship with Him, that He loves us more than any father has ever had. This may sound sappy. It's much cleaner if the Christian faith isn't all this relationship stuff. It's just kind of a go through the motions. But it doesn't make any sense that way. It doesn't line up with scripture that way. It dishonors Jesus that way. And so instead I say, throw yourself into this love affair. When the great theologian Karl Barth, who you wouldn't know but we had to read a ton of in seminary, was asked to sum up the Christian faith. And he has written volumes and volumes of stuff that I read and I can't understand. And when they asked him to sum it up, what, what is the Christian faith really in a sentence? He said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's the faith. This is a faith of love, that God loves you that much. And as hard as it is to accept, I challenge you to start wrestling with seeing yourself as being that loved by the Father. Let's pray. Our Father, please pull us up onto your lap. Hold us. Let us know that we are loved. Not because we want some sappy, emotional faith. But because we honestly just want to know you. We want to feel that love that we can't find anywhere else. Strengthen and care for us, we pray. Amen.